You're listening to a news report podcast from TheBody.com, the Internet's most comprehensive HIV-AIDS resource. This is Bonnie Goldman, Editorial Director of TheBody.com, and I'd like to welcome you to an HIV update. 2007 was such an exciting year for new drugs that even some HIV specialists are scratching their heads trying to figure out how and when all these new drugs will be used in treating people with HIV. Today we're going to look at one of the new classes or types of HIV medications recently approved. They're called CCR5 inhibitors and they attack HIV in a totally new way. Helping us to understand these new drugs will be my guest today, Dr. David Hardy, a researcher and clinician who's the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. He's also one of the leading researchers looking at Celzentry, which is the first CCR5 inhibitor to be improved in the United States. He'll give us the lowdown on how these new drugs work and put them into context. So welcome, Dr. Hardy. Can you explain what's so unique about CCR5 inhibitors? I think the most important uniqueness of this new class of medications is really just that. It's a brand new class of medications that works by what we call a a new mechanism of action, by the way it stops HIV from getting inside of a human T-cell. I think that's really the most important thing here because when a medication works by a new mechanism of action, it is predictably going to be active against viruses that have become resistant or non-responsive to our previous classes of medications. The CCR5 inhibitors are a class of medications that we've never used before. And just last year, in late 2007, the first medication of its kind, called Maraviroc, was approved by the FDA for use in treatment-experienced HIV-positive persons. This offers a really important new advantage to those persons who have become resistant to the previous classes, such as the nucleosides, non-nucleosides, and protease inhibitors, because this medication works in a new and different way, we would not expect those viruses to be resistant to this new class. Can you describe a little bit about how CCR5 inhibitors work and how that's different from all previous HIV medications? I think some of the excitement about this really revolves around that very point. About 10 years ago, we became much more knowledgeable about how HIV gets inside of a cell. Previous to that time, we thought it was a pretty simple process whereby the virus simply attached to an outside molecule in the human T cell and then basically just kind of got it pulled in. We now know that the process is a little more complex by that and includes at least three different steps. One of those steps, the middle step, is one in which the virus has to use a specific kind of receptor on the outside of the cell. The scientific name for it is a chemokine co-receptor. That is sort of a lock and key mechanism whereby the virus has to use a specific type of co-receptor to gain entrance into the cell. The CCR5 inhibitors basically block that key and lock sort of mechanism such that the virus cannot put its key, so to speak, into the lock on the outside of the cell and then interact with the cell in a key and lock mechanism sort of way to gain entrance inside the cell. These new mechanisms of action has been very exciting because our previous classes of anti-HIV medications have worked only after the virus has gotten inside the cell and has already been doing some of its infection sort of processes. This new class of medication works at a much earlier point in the HIV infection cycle so that it blocks the virus's ability to get inside the cell to begin with. 
So it's an entry inhibitor. Exactly. It is classified as a type of entry inhibitor as well as a CCR5 inhibitor. So it's like Fusion in that way. It is in the same class of Fusion. However, Fusion works at the third step of the entry process of HIV uh, getting inside of a cell. So the two medications, CCR5 inhibitors and fusion inhibitors, are actually different medications. They work in different ways, but they work, as we can think so far, probably in complementary ways where they don't inhibit or compete with each other, but yet, in fact, probably can work together to better block HIV's entry inside of a cell. Let me just recap this. So there are different types of HIV, like HIV-1 and HIV-2, and there are different subtypes. And now it turns out that the, every single person with HIV has an HIV that can enter through a different co-receptor on the CD4 cell. Is that That's right? That's true. You know, one thing that has been really important as we have studied and learned more about HIV is that it's a little more complex than we originally thought it was going to be. The important information I think that you just alluded to there, Bonnie, is the fact that we know HIV changes over time. When someone first becomes infected with HIV, about 98 to 99% of the time, whether it's sexual transmission, mother-to-child transmission, and in the majority of injection drug use transmissions, the type of HIV that causes infection is what's called a CCR5 using virus. For short, we just call that an R5 virus. This happens in almost all persons who become infected. Over time, it's been noted that in some persons, the R5 virus, meaning the one that uses the CCR5 co-receptor to gain interest into the cell, and that lock and key mechanism we spoke about before, that R5 virus will change over time. And it seems to change at points in time when the person's T-cells are falling and when the person seems to be headed for some what we call clinical progression or opportunistic diseases associated with HIV and AIDS. This doesn't occur in everyone we know, but does occur in some people. And this transition is called an R5 to X4 viral change. HIV, at some point in its life cycle, will start using a different co-receptor called the CXCR4 co-receptor. For short, we just call that the X4 type of HIV. This switch from R5 virus to X4 virus has usually been associated with a declining course of T-cells and declining health. So it's something that we've always been kind of concerned about as a signal of bad things to come. We don't know exactly what causes this to happen. We don't know whether it's the virus that changes that causes the T-cells to fall or whether it's perhaps the falling T-cells that have some effect on the virus. But we do know that in about half the people who go on to die from HIV, they will have a R5 to X4 virus switch sometime during their decline in T-cells. How does someone find out what kind of virus they have? The best way to do that right now is that there is a test very much like a phenotype-genotype test. In fact, it is a type of phenotype test that is run by a laboratory in Northern California called the Monogram Bioscience Laboratory that can determine whether a person's virus is an R5 virus or an X4 virus. The reason that, that that laboratory test was developed was to be able to determine whether that person's virus would be susceptible to medications that block the R5 receptor, the CCR5 inhibitors, the ones we talked about earlier in this interview. That test is available widely now throughout the United States, and it's one that is being done commonly when patients and their physicians are considering using an R5 inhibitor. It's a blood test, right? It is a blood test. It is exactly like a phenotype test. It uses the same laboratory technique that a phenotype uses 
when one is trying to determine which medications the virus might be susceptible to. So does this mean that you can't have an undetectable viral load when you use this test? That is true. Just like with other kinds of viral resistance testing, uh, that requires that a person have a viral load of 500 to 1,000 to get the test done with the tropism test, as it's called, or what's called a trophile test by the brand name. The person must have a viral load of at least 1,000 for the test to be done well. So I understand the testing is pretty expensive. What if your insurance doesn't cover the testing? Is there any sort of program? From what I understand, although I don't work for the monogram, my discussions with them about the situation has been that in most cases, I know that in the state of California where I live, that both our ADAP program as well as our Medicaid equivalent here called Medi-Cal are covering the test and patients, physicians will order it. So insurance coverage so far has not been a big problem. Most PPO, HMO insurances are also covering it as well. Once you find out what kind of virus you have, then you'll know if you can include a CCR5 inhibitor in your treatment regimen. Is that right? Correct. The clinical studies that have been done to evaluate where the CCR5 inhibitors will work best have studied people who have both what we call CCR5 using or R5 using virus and also persons who have another kind of virus that contains the X4 type of virus. These studies have clearly shown that where the medications work best, the CCR5 inhibitors, are only with the patients who have the CCR5 using or what we call R5 using viruses. The other kind of viruses that use X4 are not inhibited by this new medication. So that's something that why the test needs to be done because what it does basically is something very similar to the genotype and phenotypes we've been doing for a while is it helps to better define which medications will work against a person's virus. So CCR5 inhibitors will not work against your virus if you have the wrong kind of virus. Correct. The study that actually evaluated that situation in which a CCR5 inhibitor, of course, in combination with other anti-HIV medications as part of a heart regimen or cocktail, showed that the addition of a CCR5 inhibitor to a regimen of other anti-HIV drugs did not add any better viral suppression than adding a placebo if the patient didn't had a X4-containing type virus population. What if you have a mixed population? Is there such a thing as a little bit of X4 and a little bit of R5? Well, yes, there is. There is a type of HIV that is bi, so to speak, meaning that it can use both the R5 lock and key mechanism and it can also use the X4 lock and key mechanism. We call those dual viruses. They can go either way with R5 or with X4. And then we also know that HIV really exists as a mixed population of viruses. Oftentimes, the viruses can contain both R5 and X4. So we group those kind of viruses into one big group called dual or mixed viruses. Whenever any X4 using virus is found in a person's virus, we consider that to be a type of virus in which a CCR5 inhibitor will not work very well. So any dual or any mixed virus population will not have a good result with a CCR5 inhibitor. Do most people with HIV have all of one type of virus or all of the other type? Or do most people have a little bit of each? 
It sounds very confusing. If I was just diagnosed yesterday, what's the likelihood that I'll have a mixed-use virus? You know, this is something we've also gotten some very good data on, is that the uh, type of virus a person has changes over time. Most people, about 98 to 99% of people, are infected with only an R5 virus. Rarely, a 1-2% of people are infected with a virus that contains any X4-using type virus. So if someone has never been treated... Um, with HIV medications, what we call treatment-naive individuals. Studies have shown that somewhere between 85 to 95 percent of those persons' viruses will be R5 using virus only. So where the R5 virus tends to be much more commonly found is in people who have never taken HIV medications before and in people who have T-cells that tend to be higher, say, over 200 than lower, say less than 200. As someone has gone through multiple regimens for HIV, multiple cocktails, say after three or four regimens that perhaps have not worked or been tolerated, the percentage of people who have only R5 virus declines. So after someone has been on, say, three or four HIV medication regimens, the percentage of those persons who have pure or only R5 virus drops to somewhere between around 50 to 60%. So do you think that these type of drugs are destined then to be used in first-line or second-line treatment, since most people who are very treatment experienced cannot take them? Right now, I should just point out, first of all, that when the FDA approved the first CCR5 inhibitor called Moravirox last fall, that the approval was only for persons who were treatment experienced. Those individuals who are known to have virus resistant to other HIV classes basically the ones who really need a new class of medications. That's where the CCR5 inhibitor, Moravroc, is now approved for use. The medication has not been approved for use in the persons you just mentioned, those who have never taken HIV medication before. Although biologically, based upon what I mentioned about how common R5, pure R5 virus is found in someone, the more rational group of people to be treated with this kind of medication would be those who have never taken HIV medication before because more of them, 85 to 95%, have the kind of virus that this type of medication will suppress. There is a study that has been ongoing now for about two and a half years that has been studying the use of Moravirox, the first CCR5 inhibitor, in treatment-naive persons, and the results were that it was almost as good as Sestiva plus Combivir regimen, but not considered to be as fully active in terms of suppressing HIV. So the FDA has not ruled on whether or not Moravirox, the first TCR5 inhibitor, can be used in treatment-naive people. It sort of makes sense it'll be earlier in the game rather than later because of all the reasons you mentioned. It does make sense. I should add there that while in the treatment-naive study with Moravirox versus Sestiva, the results were very close in terms of suppressing virus. However, Moravirox was not quite as good as Isistiva. But on the other hand, the patients who got the Moravirox did have a significantly higher number of T-cells over a year's treatment and also had less side effects in terms of the kind of side effects that usually make people stop taking their medication, particularly the neurologic side effects that can occur with Isistiva. So there's, you know, becoming more and more all the time a larger sort of perspective we take on new HIV medications in terms of how well they may raise the T-cell count in individuals and also how well they may be tolerated. Were there any gender or racial differences seen in response to cells entry? No, there were not. I do have to say that in the large 
1,000-patient study that the FDA approved Charles Gentry from, the proportion of women was about 10 to 12 percent. So the experience with women is much less than experience with men, like many of our HIV medications. But looking at that 10 to 12 percent of women compared to the men in, this, in those studies, there does not seem to be any evidence of difference in terms of gender. And there were somewhere between about 30 to 40 percent of people who were not Caucasian in the studies. And again, no difference in terms of race or ethnic group either. So tell me, what are the most typical side effects with Celsentry or Maravarac? The large clinical studies that have been completed with Maravarac have been very good studies for trying to determine what side effects may happen when you add that new drug compared to adding no drug, meaning a placebo. That kind of study uh, design gives us a very good look at the side effects a new drug may add. And basically, the only side effect that patients reported that was more common with Maravarog versus a placebo was a slightly increased number of colds, what we call upper respiratory tract infections, uh, colds, coughs, that kind of thing, and also a cough. And why an increased number of colds or respiratory tract infections in the head and neck was more common as well as with a cough than taking a placebo has not really been clear. I think the important thing is is that there was no greater number of cases of diarrhea, nausea, headache, fatigue, and the common kind of side effects oftentimes are seen with HIV medications. There was also no neurologic side effects that were reported in terms of dreaming, in terms of difficulty with sleeping or feeling groggy. And the other side of the coin, of course, that's always important for us is to look at the laboratory side effects. So far, there has been no evidence, no indication that Maravroc has been associated with any problems with liver disease or causing liver disease, liver irritation, kidney disease or kidney irritation, pancreatic irritation or bone marrow suppression, meaning causing anemia or suppressing one's white blood cell count, the infection-fighting cells. So when I actually start patients on Maravaroc now, when I sit down and talk to them about what they might expect in terms of side effects, I really have very little to tell them. It's been a refreshing and new sort of way of introducing a new drug to a patient because there's really not a whole lot of side effects, really at all I can think of, that they have to be warned about. It's been a significant advancement that this medication does not carry with it any significant side effects so far. Do we know if Celsentry has any effect on body shape changes, facial wasting or fat um, accumulation? Today, there have not been any specific studies about that that I know of. You know, what we oftentimes first pick up that kind of thing from is what we call anecdotal reports, meaning that someone will say, I treated five patients with this medication and three of them, you know, came back and told me that their faces were getting thin and not looking so good. Even the anecdotal reports so far of the almost 2,000 persons that have been treated with cells injury studies has not really shown any kind of fat wasting or fat accumulation. The lipodystrophy problems that we've noticed with other HIV medications. So, so far, so good. We haven't seen anything like that. But of course, the medication has not been studied in a huge number of patients so far, given to a huge number. It's just on the market in September of 2007. We do know one thing about it that's kind of interesting, and that is one thing that can sometimes or not sometimes be associated with the fat changes in the face and body are changes in the cholesterol, what we call the lipid changes, the fatty substances in the blood, cholesterol, and what we also call triglycerides. So far, one large study with Maravaroc demonstrated that over a year's period of time, the change in the cholesterol and the triglycerides was really negligible from where the patient started. So even in comparison to a drug that generally does not cause much lipid changes, a drug, uh, Sestiva, we've seen so far that Maravaroc causes even less problems with cholesterol and triglycerides than 
sense as Steven does. So are there any long-term safety issues that we still don't understand about CCR5 inhibitors? I understand that there were some cancer diagnosis in the Vicrovirac study. Is there a chance that the CCR5 receptor is more important to normal immune function than we think? First of all, say that with any brand new class of medication, we really do have to take a, I think, an optimistic watch and wait sort of attitude in terms of looking at what side effects might occur over a long time. You know, for example, no one suspected that protease inhibitors that work so well in dropping viral load and helping T cells to come back up in 1996 would be associated with the lipodystrophy problems that occurred by 1998-99 in many patients. In order not to try to make that same kind of mistake, the studies that have been done with Mraviroc and are in most cases somewhere out to around two and a half to three years for most patients are going to be continued for a total of five years so that the patients will stay in the studies and be carefully observed to make sure that if any kind of new and different kind of problems we haven't seen before, such as cancers, such as increased infection, such as anything that may pop up later on in the drug's use for long-term therapy, that those will be caught and be able to be carefully observed in terms of numbers and how many patients it's occurring in. I can tell you so far with Maraviroc, there has been no signal, no sign that any increased cancers has been seen, either lymphomas or Kaposi's sarcoma, which are commonly seen in persons with AIDS, or any other kind of skin cancers or other kind of cancers at all. You referred to a second CCR5 inhibitor called Vicroviroc, which is not approved yet. It's still in the development stages. And in one small study with that drug, there appeared to be a potential increase in number of lymphomas in the persons who got the Vicroviroc compared to those who got the comparative placebo treatment. And whether or not that's going to be borne out in larger studies has really not been seen at this time. So, you know, I think with any brand new class of medications, we do have to be cautiously optimistic about watching and waiting to see what, if any kind of side effects may occur down the road. Has the CCR5 inhibitors, whether Vicroviroc or Celzentri, been tested with pregnant women? They have not been tested yet. In the initial studies with a new medication, especially a new class of medications like this, the FDA in our country prohibits pregnant women from being given those medications, really until we know whether or not there's any kind of side effects that may occur affect the unborn baby. We do know that Maraviroc is classified as what's called a Category B medication, which means that on the FDA range of A to F, of medications that can cause birth defects in babies, A being none, F being do not ever use that medication in a pregnant woman. Right now, Maraviroc is considered to be a B, which means that in animal studies in which pregnant animals, rats, dogs, rabbits, were given Maraviroc and had babies, there was no evidence that birth defects occurred in those animals. Because not enough pregnant women have been given this medication, there's still something to be learned, but so far it looks pretty good. What about people co-infected with hepatitis C? Can they also take CCR5 inhibitors? So far there's been no problem with that. In the large studies that were responsible for the FDA approving Maraviroc, about 15 to 16 percent of those people had either hepatitis B or hepatitis C. And the effect on the liver in those persons was not any more severe 
or problematic than it was in persons who didn't have hepatitis B or hepatitis C. So the safety of the medication in all persons, whether they have hepatitis B or C or not, seems to be very good in terms of liver effects. So is there a difference in terms of CCR5 inhibitors and HIV drug resistance? I mean, do they become as resistant if you don't take it on time, just like other drugs? And if you become resistant to one, does that mean you're going to be resistant to the others? Again, I think that's one of those questions that I've heard very little good answers for so far. We do know that in a small number of cases in which someone who was taking Moraviroc or Vicroviroc and the viral load was suppressed, went down, but then bounced back up, what we call a rebound in viral load, that when the studies in the laboratory were done to look at that person's virus, a very small number of them became resistant to the medication. There has been some limited studies of looking at what we call cross-resistance between one CCR5 inhibitor and another. And so far, that has not been something that has commonly occurred, that the different CCR5 inhibitors do seem to continue to work even when a virus may become resistant to one. The clinical application of that has really not been seen yet because since only one CCR5 inhibitor has been used in a fairly large number of patients, Moraviroc, and only one is approved by the FDA and is now on the market, the opportunity to treat a person who has failed one CCR5 inhibitor with a second one has really not been possible. So besides Vicroviroc, and Moraviroc. Are there other CCR5 inhibitors like currently being developed? There is another one being developed by a, a third pharmaceutical company in the United States that looks like it's going to be a once-a-day given medication. It's still in very early studies. I know I saw results on it last summer from a phase one study which demonstrated that the drug did have some good short-term activity over a 10-day period in suppressing R5-type HIV. I've not seen more studies on that drug to date. I guess the one thing that may suggest that drug may be an improvement is that currently Moraviroc is licensed to be given as a twice-a-day drug, once in the morning, once at night. If the unapproved drugs that are still in development, the CCR5 inhibitors, both Vicroviroc and this other drug I mentioned, they are both given once a day. Are there ongoing studies looking at how well CCR5 inhibitors work, particularly cells entry, or are all those studies done? The study done in treatment experience people, the trials that are called the Motivate 1 and Motivate 2 studies, are going to be continued out through five years. Most patients are somewhere between two and a half to three years of a study right now. And those studies are going to be ongoing for about another two to two and a half years. The studies in the treatment-naive patients, those who just started treatment, again, those studies are now about two and a half years mature. And again, those persons are going to be followed, those 700 people in those studies are going to be followed for um, another approximate three years as well. I don't know exactly how many new studies that the company Pfizer, who makes cells entry, but I know they are starting studies in children, or actually children and adolescents, ages 16 and less, uh, in order to see what kind of effects they have in children. I think they're also looking at studying more women and more persons of color because the first trials did not have adequate representation of those populations. I think there's also some interest in studying cell-zentry in kind of new and different applications. There's a study, I think, on the drawing board to study cell-zentry as a vaginal microbicide, uh, putting it into a gel that could be inserted vaginally or perhaps even rectally that could block the ability of HIV from being sexually transmitted by blocking its ability to attach to a cell 
a human cell to begin with. So now that the drug has been approved, more and different kind of studies are set up for the future. Just a curiosity about why it's going to be studied as a microbicide. The primary reason that it's being used as a microbicide is because we know that when transmission of HIV occurs from person to person, particularly in sexual transmission, that the type of virus that is transmitted from person to person is predictably going to be about 98 to 99% an R5 virus, the type of virus that Maraviroc can block. So, you know, knowing that that's the kind of virus that basically gets through the person's skin or mucosa, the lining inside of a vagina, rectum, or mouth, that the kind of virus that you particularly would want to block is the R5 virus. And the type of virus that Maraviroc can block is an R5 virus. Therefore, using it as a topical microbicide in the, va- in the vagina or the rectum would seem to make a lot of sense. So that's why it's been chosen to be studied for that purpose as well. Great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Hardy. This has been really interesting. My pleasure, Bonnie. Thank you. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. This has been a news report podcast from thebody.com. Be sure to check in at thebody.com frequently for the latest news and information on HIV, including in-depth interviews with HIV-positive people, researchers, and healthcare professionals. 